it's more sustainable if we were to just recognize this tendency and back off and realize and ask ourselves the question, is my technology enhancing my life or diminishing it? And I think for most of us, many of us, it would be diminishing it. And so therefore, we have to make the behavioral choices. Thanks for tuning in into the first episode of the Program Life podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Judith Grizel. Judith is a professor of psychology at Bucknell University. She has a special interest in addiction and is a behavioral neuroscientist. In this episode, I will be discussing with her about her book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, where she shares her personal experience of overcoming addiction, as well as her passion for research into the neuroscience of addiction. I would like to thank you first for coming on to this show. And um, it really is an honor to have you here. And I'm really happy to have you here. Since, and I've read your book called um, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. And neuroscience and addiction is really like a passion. Like neuroscience as a subject is a really like interesting subject to me. And it's one of my favorite topics to discuss in general. So I hope this could be a great conversation. I did too. And uh <laughs> I think neuros- it's a great time to be talking about neuroscience because yeah. there's so much going on. Yeah. So I would like to start with one of my favorite parables. Um, so one day, a father and his son were playing chess in the evening. And the son said, Dad, why do you like chess so much? And his father replied, Son, it's because I've always found it interesting. And the son asked, But Dad, what's so interesting about it? And the father replied, the fact that during each game, all the pieces move at their own paces. And at the end of each game, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. So I would like to start off by asking you what this parable means to you personally and your life and also um, the work that you do. Well, there, I can think of lots of layers for that parable, but I, I think that one of the things I hear in it is that we don't individually often see this whole game. We just see our parts. And sometimes it's hard to imagine how my little part fits into uh, a whole, you know, a coherent and um, in some ways orderly unfolding but I think that uh, it does. And I also take from it that the same box is uh, in some ways the same set of constraints and um, opportunities mm-hmm. in, in, you know, expressed in different ways because you have different uh, capacities, I guess. But I think that there's a, a, a common... Uh, purpose, I guess, for us all. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And for me personally, I take two messages from this, from what the father said. And that is that we all move forward in our own pace and it's okay to be behind sometimes. And since we're all going on our different journeys and though we all hold different ranks, in the end, we're all the same. So um, I would like to move on to the topic of addiction, which is one of my favorites. And I consider addiction as like a biological model in a sense. And I really think of it as like a science kind of thing. And I would like to ask you as in, why do you think addiction is classified sometimes as a disease? Because some people think of it as like a psychological disease. And why do you think it's classified as a disease? And personally, do you think, is it is addiction a biological model, a disease, or maybe a choice? Well, um, I do think that everything psychological is biological at the same time. And so you can't separate a mood or a thought or a behavior from molecular underpinnings. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's both. Um, I think the disease, you know, the word disease, as you kind of suggest, is pretty vague. And I think its uh, ambiguity is reflected in the way that um, many groups, including the medical groups in the U.S. and throughout the world, are changing the definition of addiction mm -hmm. often. And they'll be changing it, I guess, in the next iterations too, because I think uh, disease is not a really precise word. You could, sometimes I think of it as a dis-ease. So there's something, you know, kind of not ideal, but it's also um, a quantitative word rather than a qualitative word. So I think we used to think mm -hmm. that you were either sick or well or addicted or not. But I think uh, the biology is showing us more often that these things are on a continuum and that there's a mm -hmm. certain you know, general point and maybe different for each person where uh, function turns into dysfunction when the, and I would say this is maybe the clearest definition, when the costs of using outweigh the profits, you know, outweigh the benefits. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like, for me, addiction, I look at it as a biological model because I personally take psycho psychology as a subject. And when we looked through addiction uh, as one of our topics, um, it was really interesting to me because um, I personally am addicted to a lot of things. Like we're all addicted to some kind of um, task. And ever since like technology has been improving at like a really fast rate, I wanted to also ask you, do you consider internet addiction as like an actual addiction or because personally, I think it's a serious addiction and that everyone should like kind of control themselves from their internet personas. And it really does change people in a way. And there are two faces, like one online and one in real life. And I think addiction has somehow caused this um, with the internet. So do you think internet addiction is an actual addiction? Well, I definitely do. And I think uh, research is learning more and more about that. 
Um, and from the perspective of, so I don't know that I would say everyone has an addiction because I think, I think it's very, very common. I think most of us struggle with something addictive, but one of the criteria in my mind anyway, needs to be that it is, um, the behavior or the use of the substance or the technology is damaging. But I do, um, agree that a rising use of technology, especially in young people, is contributing to an addictive uh, phenotype or an addictive presentation where you're um, dependent on the technology to feel normal. And uh, without it, therefore, you are feeling uh, less than and you're using it to cope but it's not helping you cope, actually. It's probably making things worse because while you're using whatever it is, technology or cocaine, um, you're not dealing with the stuff really that would help your life improve. So I I think it, um, from the perspective of sort of the distant perspective looking at it, it's clearly causing the same kinds of dysfunctional behaviors And I think the neuroscience reflects that in that um, all addictive substances share a common brain pathway called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway that is Mm -hmm. a very cool but sort of small set of neurons responsible for alerting us to important things. And it evolved mostly, I think, to help us find good things to eat and uh, to procreate. So, um, you know, anything tasty or important or relevant, and it even helps us signal, um, you know, uh, bad things. It's, it's sort of the news pathway. Well, anyway, all addictive drugs activate this pathway, and the technologies, which are designed by people, not by plants so much, um, like addictive drugs usually are, at least to start, are uh, built in order to exploit that pathway, in order to provide the kind of stimulus that the brain perceives as highly relevant and therefore um, worthy of doing. And the more we do something, the more likely it is to turn into a compulsion and a dependence. And uh, so I think that Absolutely. We're seeing a huge rise in this. And it's it's all kinds of things. The games that are designed to be addictive. Pornography is a classic example. But even um, updates on Instagram or TikTok can be addictive. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. And when I was going through um, or when, when I was in class um, during our psychology lesson, we went, we went across the topic of dopamine. And what I realized from that, like I was really interested by this um, chemical and that was produced in our brain. And I never knew this at first. It was like really interesting to me. And I I delved in deeper into it and I searched, um, I researched about it. And I really found that we first need to understand that uh, the brain that doesn't actually work objectively, but relatively. So for example, I would, if I were to do or if I were to say that I was going to do homework today, then my brain wouldn't actually think objectively, but relatively. So it thinks on which t- 
task gives you the most dopamine. And our brain really craves for dopamine so much that it would sabotage our lives to do anything for it. And we can see this in like the extreme cases with drug addicts that can't even control themselves who have given themselves into taking a negative task and that produces a lot of dopamine. And I wanted to ask you what your view on dopamine was um, and if it can turn addiction into an advantage. Well, there's a lot there, Yogesh. Um, I would say that the the brain would not sabotage us. I think the process of addiction that develops as we choose to um, or are compulsively using uh, a substance or a technology um, is the brain's attempt to kind of keep us alive. So um, let, let's unpack this a little bit more, I think. The, um, the dopamine pathway, like most of the brain, actually all of the brain, all of the communication in the brain. And we don't, we're still trying to understand it. It's incredibly complex. We have, you know, close to a hundred billion neurons, which are the main brain cells. And now we know we have maybe 10 times more than that of glial cells and those glial cells. So it's it's just a massively packed, complex system. Um, Those glial cells we now know are um, also playing a major role in how the brain works. And it works largely by communication across synapses. And there's trillions of synapses, trillions. So um, what's normally happening is that as we process events in the environment, small uh, groups of cells in, you know, little microcircuits are being activated or deactivated to indicate what's going on. And as we both know, the role of dopamine is to sort of um, tell us when that's important, when that's especially relevant, either either good or um, perhaps dangerous. So, you know, when is something to really pay attention to? And so it's newsworthy. Um, I think the problem happens when we who are now uh, so advanced, we can deliver news in the form of dopamine or technology kind of at will and in the doses and the frequency and the intensity that is, you know, kind of unprecedented in our evolutionary history. So now we can just stimulate that pathway, you know, in spades. It's, it's much more potent than a normal Amount And so what happens is the system kind of gets desensitized and it does that in a way to save our lives, because if everything is meaningful all the time, then nothing really matters. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. in order to prevent nothing really mattering, which would be a recipe for extinction, I think um, it, the brain adapts by making itself less sensitive to news and as it does that, we're getting less of a jolt from our substance or our tech. And so now we need to do it more often and more regularly, and we need a better game. And as that happens, it gets less and less sensitive again in order that we could know if something 
truly is happening. So I don't think the brain is sabotaging us. It's doing its best to keep us alive. But, you know, there's these old experiments I'm sure you learned about in psychology. When we first discovered this dopamine pathway, where they would um, stimulate it with electricity, which is much like our brain stimulates itself. There's electrical chemical signals and uh, in rats. And the rats who were able to press a bar to turn on the electricity in this news pathway uh, basically ignored every other thing. They ignored the opportunity to have sex. They ignored food. They ignored water. They ignored sleep. They just sat there pressing the bar to turn on the juice so much that they many of them died. And so this is why our brain is trying to keep us from that. If you just sit and play video games for two weeks straight, you know, you, you won't be able to. So, I mean, do you think, cause like I tried this method that I found online and a lot of people talk about it is dopamine detox. And it's kind of where you just stop doing that addictive task for like a whole day so that the dopamine in a way resets for that task. And um, I was going to ask you, do you think this, actually works or do you know how this actually works in our brains and how our brains actually function in during this way of doing dopamine detox well can i ask first if it worked for you i guess um dopamine detox for me personally was like it was to be honest kind of life-changing as in um i was really addicted to um going on my phone going straight onto instagram the first app that i open up and it really was kind of um, distracting a lot when I was trying to do what I really wanted to do in life. And that was, you know, to get my grade, my good grades and, you know, trying to be productive in a way. And when I stopped using my phone just for one day or like just for one day on a weekend on Saturday, I just turned off my phone, never used it and only just used my laptop, sat down with my books and it more or less, more or less just, made me think that I, my phone actually wasn't really that important. And like, I wouldn't, cause I always had this feeling of missing something of maybe missing out on something. And I realized that I w- actually wasn't missing out on anything. And it actually was kind of pointless going on Instagram, checking every time and refreshing every time. And I could see this when, you know, one of my, uh, in one of my trips, into a jungle which we had in class we had a trip to a a forest and we weren't allowed any phones during that time we had a one-week trip there and when we came back from that trip I I saw like literally none of my classmates actually used their phones for a long time actually like they they didn't use Instagram for a long time they didn't post anything for a long time they actually realized themselves how it was kind of pointless just refreshing again and again. So that's my view on it. Yeah, that's so perfect because it really aligns with all uh, other addictions, as we've been saying. So it's it's interesting that it, it stops working for you. You know, it stops kind of giving you the pleasure, but you continue to do it just sort of in a compulsive way, thinking you're going to miss something, just like a any other drug addict, you know, without doing it, you don't feel well. And then um, noticing how much it sounds like how much uh, more expansive your days were without the technology. And there is this 
uh, narrowing of our behavioral and cognitive and emotional repertoire as a result of of using, you know, that uh, I think you really described well. So I would say this, um, it's always, I guess I, I'm kind of somebody who's inclined to extremes. So either, you know, as much dopamine as I can possibly get or zero, but probably it's more sustainable if we were to just recognize this tendency and back off and realize and ask ourselves the question, is my technology enhancing my life or diminishing it? And I think for most of us, many of us, it would be diminishing it. And so therefore, we have to make the behavioral choices instead of, um, you know, say, oh, it's a fast day and I'm, you know, I'm going to fast. I'd, on the other hand, I don't think it's a bad thing to do this because you can really maybe recognize a rebound. But I want to give one caveat that I think is probably important. A literature on addiction, when adolescents are using drugs uh, frequently and addictively, the dopamine pathway sort of permanently desensitizes. So if you do an experiment where you take uh, an adolescent and an adult and you give them the same amount of drug exposure, it could be anything, it could be fentanyl or uh, technology or whatever. And then, well, we haven't done those experiments with technology yet, but we could. Uh, so, and then you let, you know, say six weeks pass, and then you give them both the opportunity again. The animals who were treated with the drug as adolescents are, de are demonstrating that they're insensitive now to dopamine. They're kind of permanently dampened. Whereas if you had it for the first time as an adult, it doesn't have such long-lasting effects. So while I would say that the detox, um, you know, might be uh, a useful exercise or kind of an interesting exercise in the short term, for the long term, I think that the use of adolescent uh, these technologies in adolescents maybe having lasting impacts and that rather than look at as a detox or full on, maybe it would be better to just um, separate ourselves a little bit. There's a, a guy, a researcher named Adam Atler, and he has written a book recently on technology called Irresistible. And he argues that um, it would be just great if we put our phones down for a few hours a day you know, kind of like you said, uh, doing on Saturday, but maybe, you know, increase that amount of time without it and see whether or not your life actually improves or you're really missing out on something critical. Yeah, that's definitely one of the pieces of advice is that I would give to anyone is literally just turning off your devices for just an hour or so. That's fine. And instead, maybe like, going out for a walk or, you know, reading a book. And I think that's definitely changed my life in a way. And on my journey on finding ways to um, get rid of my addiction with technology or with anything else is I also watched a TED Talk by Joan Hari. And his perspective of addiction really interested me because um, he said that addiction is actually bonding and the opposite of addiction, I quote, is connections. 
So I wanted to ask you on what you think of his perspective addiction and what does addiction actually mean and what happens in our brains when we go through these highly addictive tasks. Yeah. So what it actually means in my view, so we we're, you know, this is a big debate and you could get a thousand neuroscientists who study addiction together and we would all, you know, see the elephant from a different perspective, I guess. And, and we'd be pointing to the same thing, but it's complicated. I would say that um, one meaning of addiction is that the, the behavior you're doing, the substance or the technology that you're using um, has, is working less and less well over time. And so you need more and more of it so that you don't feel normal without it. And in that situation where you don't feel normal without it, your, uh, your life is, is less, you know, it's, um, it's incapacitated because now you need this as a crutch to just feel okay. And what used to give you a real, uh, sense of fun or pleasure or joy or thrill is now just necessary to feel okay. And without it, you feel bad. So that, that I think is what it means. And as, because the drug then becomes so important, it always comes with uh, an increasing isolation because other things that normally were important, like our social relationships or our ideas or the music or hiking in the woods, those, those become less and less um, compelling because really they are ways of interfering with the drug. I, I'm recovering myself, as you know, and I think um, – one of the things that's just so commonly striking about all people with addictions is that their life gets narrower and narrower and narrower as basically their drug use or their technology use determines much of what they do. So um, as that happens, we're increasingly isolated. And I agree with Harry that um, addiction is a process of alienation and isolation from other people, from, you know, bigger senses of meaning or wonder from ourselves, from the natural world, uh, like natural stimuli, like food or sex, or, um, you know, as, as really it's just me and my pipe or me and my uh, phone. So that's for sure. And then, for me, um, as as John pointed out, it it is it recovery was a process of connection. I think the opposite of addiction, just for the sake of argument, is choice. Um, mm. But it it is dependent completely on reconnecting, and it's it's hard to do because the the thing about these drugs or technologies is that they're readily available in high doses, you know, and we can deliver them like on demand. And so, for instance, who wants to take the time to get to know somebody and they have some foibles and, you know, there's some good parts about them, but it's complicated and you have to go through difficult times or who wants to learn how to rock climb when, you know, you're slow and you have to get strong, you know, it's just, it's so dang tedious. Whereas you could just get a bag of something or a really great new game 
and lock yourself in your room and just stimulate yourself, you know, to pieces. It's, it's much, uh, it seems much easier, but as, uh, we've been saying, you know, the, the costs are, are definitely evident. I definitely agree with you on that. Like when I, um, I also found out this, um, when I watched a video on YouTube, he, this, um, this guy on YouTube said that friction was one of the strongest forces on the planet. And this really hit me as in when you going back to when you said like getting a bag or getting uh, a new video game is much more easier than doing other things or like just opening your phone or getting out your phone is just much more easier. So what he means by friction was that the friction that you, uh, the friction between you and you doing that task needs to increase so that you break that addiction or that habit that you have. And that really resonated with me as in really like turning off your phone makes it makes increases the friction between you going on Instagram because you have to turn on your phone, which takes a while and, um, you know, put your password in and open the app and, you know, maybe that, that might take longer than just opening a book up. So I guess that really resonated with me in a way. So I would like to ask what you think of um, friction in a way. Yeah, It reminds me, I I, uh, had a friend who would say, that uh, the wind is your friend. We would, we bike rode a lot together and he was really strong, but he would purposely, you know, aim for hills and headwinds because he felt like if you were riding your bike with the wind at your back all the time, you weren't getting any stronger. And so, you know, he was constantly, uh, you know, adding weight to his bicycle and, really choosing the wind, which was interesting for me because I'm somebody who's looking usually for the easy, quick fix, not the uh, the long one. But I think that it is a friend and friction is a friend in that it, um, it makes us stronger and um, makes us uh, develop. And, and really, what is our lives you know, what is the purpose of our life if it's not to become our our best self? And I don't think we become our best self without friction, without wind, without adversity, without um, challenge. And the, the, um, the thing about drugs is, and technology is I think it looks like a backdoor, you know, it looks like an easy, uh, an easy way to get around this instead of having to deal with friction, we'll just escape it. And as a result of that, though, we are uh, much less than we could be. So I I like that um, idea. And friction, you know, as a force, I guess, it also reminded me, you know, just the friction of water over eons has made some of the most beautiful, intricate, um, complex systems like in the US we have the Grand Canyon you know which is just incredible it was only water it's nothing you know it doesn't seem like it would be that powerful but i think that um it's a good metaphor for how we change it's it's gradually choosing in some ways the harder path yeah definitely agree on you with that and one of my favorite philosophers also had a saying where he said 
we have two lives and the second one begins when we realize we have only one. And this really hit me when I read this. And and I really regret wasting some of my time um, playing video games and having all-nighters all the time and being addicted to them. And, you know, some of my friends that um, also have, uh, you know, ha- had drugs in the past. And this really made me feel that we only actually have one life. And I would want to ask you on what you think about addiction wasting most of our lifetime sometimes for some people. And how do we actually stop this? How do you actually stop addiction in your opinion? Well, that is really (laughs) wonderful. So um, I think that you are way ahead of the curve. And uh, so together we should figure out ways to um, share your insight because adolescence, uh, people from, say, puberty to about early 20s now, are kind of designed by evolution again to think that they have more than one life. In other words, to disregard the possibility of their own mortality or the prop, you know, the, the um, inevitability of their own mortality, which is mm-hmm. good for both them and for the rest of us. So let me back up a little bit. There's a gap in um, brain development between motivational circuits, which come on pretty early, and um, abstract reasoning circuits like the one you are using in this podcast. And normally that gap, I think we we would call adolescence. So they have, um, you know, typically they're high risk taking, they're not worried about dying. In fact, when I was 16 and 17, I I just either I didn't think I would die or it didn't seem at all relevant to my, you know, life. And I think I'm more typical maybe than you were. So that uh, tendency to take risks and kind of be um, novel, you know, to not worry about the future helps us to, in a, without drugs and video games, I guess, to explore the world and to become, you know, to make progress. If everybody was cautious and reserved and worried, then uh, we wouldn't, I don't think, as a, as a population, have, have had so much innovation. So I think we depend on young people who are ready to throw caution to the wind and just do whatever. Now, this is in the in our evolutionary history where we didn't have so many high potency substances and technologies to take us offline. So I agree for most people that uh, second life doesn't begin until it's really late. And um, I think evolution designed it for most people to begin maybe in the early twenties when we would also be, you know, picking a career and a lifestyle and, uh, you know, place to live and all those kinds of things. So I, I think it's great that you realize that early. And I guess what I think we're talking around is the probability that these substances kind of um, take normal development off the rails And, you know, I can't tell you how many I teach at a university. And so I have seniors who come to me and say, like you said, oh, my gosh, you know, I've spent four years basically, you know, just getting by in my classes and 
playing video games all night or drinking all night. And I really regret it now because I miss so much. And, uh, you know, you can't go backwards. So this is a really potent time, adolescence. And uh, for those who are able to use it, not without addictive substances, I think they have, uh, you know, so much potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like the reason why I personally have realized this in like an early stage is because um, when maybe a close um, relative um, passes away or even this um, COVID-19 pandemic has really affected me at the start. And it kind of made me realize that, you know, that we only have one life and we actually should just make the best out of it. And that's where this journey journey started for me personally. And it really affected me in that way. And I wanted to ask you on what is the best way to help a person that you know is addicted, like a best friend that is addicted to drugs or anything else? And how can we build our society to be a better place in this way? Yeah. Um, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking, well, this might be a silver lining of COVID that um, when we get through it, which we will, we'll appreciate the opportunities for social interactions, for being out and about, um, for our choices much more because we've been so limited in our choices. It's kind of the uh, looking for the wind analogy, you know, this is a lot of wind, I'd say. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by your story because I think it is so unusual and it's so different from mine. But, um, you know, it was a little bit later when I, when I got, uh, when I guess I decided to make the most of my life instead of, you know, sit in a dark closet by myself with my substances. Um, but I, we both had maybe resources to do that. You had resources maybe in your own brain. I had resources all around me. So I think uh, going back to um, Hari, the, uh, the first thing to do would be to say from my own perspective what I see in the other person. So I see that you're... Um, spending 10 hours a day on this video game. And it, it hurts me because I miss our friendship. I miss the things that we used to do. I, uh, I feel disconnected to you and um, worried for you. You know, we can't force people, but I think sometimes if we, if we come at it with our own perspective rather than, you know, what you're doing is killing you and you should stop. I think people don't respond very well to that. You know, they just isolate further. But if it's more of an invitation than an admonition, I think um, that might work better. And then, of course, the hard work of actually providing the bridge for people, because what we've done is we've kind of cut the ties to other things, our families maybe, or our classes, or our the things we used to love to do, sports or something. So I think, uh, you know, I can remember with friends just suggesting, let's go out and take a walk. Um, and, you know, it doesn't seem appealing compared to, you know, 
amphetamine or something. But, and I think as we make little changes with support of other people, it can, um, it can turn around. I would say that just as there's this very vulnerable time in adolescence for, as we talked about, dampening the dopamine reward pathway and then making addictive tendencies increase, there's also a really, for the same reason, that pathway is so plastic that if you can refrain and change your behaviors before you're 20 or 25, the earlier the better, of course, then the more hope there is for, um, you know, choosing and building a life that has more personal meaning. Yeah. And I definitely think that making, you know, going out with your friends and, you know, making these, um, building these connections is really important. And friends to me in, in a way is in general are really important. And, um, I'm also inspired by how, you know, how successful you are from um, the tough challenges that you've faced in your life. And I would like to ask you, like, what hurdles did you personally think were the hardest to face in your life? And how did you manage to overcome those hurdles? Well, I can answer the second one quickly. It's, it's basically the friends that you said. You know, it was through connections with, first of all, other people and um, but secondly, ideas, you know, uh, stuff that was bigger than me. There is this, um, as uh, Hari says, you know, the, the isolation that comes with using, and I would call the alienation, is this narrowing. And so I had to um, expand, and I did that through other people, but then through education and um, art, you know, all kinds of things. So the hurdles, wow, well... Oh my goodness. You know, so many things, life is hard and, uh, there's certainly no shortage of difficulties that, uh, that I had to face. I think that, um, you know, in a general sense, I, I used my substances as a way to avoid facing those hurdles. I thought it was, you know, it seemed like it was helping me cope and then it seemed like, oh, I could just evade all uncomfortable experiences that really backfires for all of us. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes emptier and emptier, and then you can't get enough drug. You know, you can't stay awake 24 hours every day, and you're still not really enjoying yourself. So, um, but what the hur- so the first hurdle was um, putting the drugs down and that happened for me in a treatment center. And then I went to a halfway house for three months, which was absolutely miserable. Uh, but I was willing to do it for two reasons, I guess. Um, I am by nature, I think a scientist and I could see the data, you know, so to speak in my own life, that things were not going well. And so once I got the drugs out of my system and my brain could work at all, it was obvious that the costs were outweighing the benefits. And I guess the logic of the illogic of my own behavior, you know, was kind of without the drugs there, you know, hard to avoid seeing. It was impossible to avoid seeing. So then I became slightly willing to change, but I wasn't totally willing. You know, I didn't think I would be, I just celebrated um, 34 years without alcohol and other drugs. Um, 
but I didn't think I would ever do that. I was going to just do it for a short time. So I'm one of these people. And I think a lot of addicts are this way that we can tolerate pain and discomfort in brief periods, hoping for something better in the future, you know? So I, uh, said I was going to do what I needed to do for a short time until I figured out what was going on. And then I was going to go back to using. And, uh, so anyway, I, I kind of took the bite the bullet kind of view. Um, and during that time, what people suggested at my treatment center in halfway house was that I make these connections. And so as I did that, I realized more and more the, um, poverty state that I had been living in and that even though life was difficult and full of challenges, which I will get to some more, um, it was worth it. Kind of like, um, I had a friend who used to say roller coasters are better than trains, you know, and I think I am a kind of roller coaster person and you can't really have the highs without the lows. And so I guess I became willing to face and go through difficult times because um, that was the cost of a full life. And I, I really see it that way now. Um, so some of those were, um, well, it took me a long time to get married. I got married for the first time at 38. And I always thought I wanted to have a partner and to have children. I had one child at 39, you know, barely by the skin of my teeth. Um, and then that was challenging because I also got two stepsons and a husband. I wasn't really used to compromising so much. And so there was a lot of family kind of things. I, um, I had hepatitis as a result of using, and that was like a long-term stressor, uh, that eventually many years later I was able to cure. I had, um, you know, personal difficulties like, accidents or, um, you know, invasions, I guess, of myself uh, in some ways and uh, had challenges at work. But I think, and so there were many days, I guess, to just get to the heart of your question, where it occurred to me, wow, you know, a nice bottle of scotch or even not such a nice one um, would really kind of mitigate this crappiness of this day or this moment, or this experience. And so it seemed, you know, really attractive. But then I realized that the cost of escaping the bad times is, um, you know, also going to take away my opportunities for growth. You know, if I, if I avoid the wind, or avoid the friction, then, uh, you know, I'm less. And so with the support of friends, I have uh, kind of chosen each day more or less life rather than death or, or feeling rather than evading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like going back to when you said, you know, um, you know, doing drugs or anything just to avoid the fear of facing the wind or facing the friction is like, I really relate to that as in when, like during always during exam periods or, you know, during those end of year exams, I always procrastinate. And, you know, uh, the reason why we, um, I guess, procrastinate in a way is the, when big projects come up or big exams come up is, is that 
we we all have the fear of the risk of failure and i think you know facing that is really important in life and um you know definitely facing failure and moving on is one of the biggest steps that i've ever done in my life that is good i completely agree with you i think if you if you can't fail you can't play and yeah. um we really hobble ourselves by our fear and i have failed so much i've gotten so many rejections i've had so many uh you know flat on my face moments and i think um you know there's no way to i i just can't imagine someone who's plucked out of that into some high uh you know place i think it is just uh plodding through and so yes i think we'll both probably have many more challenging times um oh, i have a noisy cat here and and i think that um uh, it is the cost failure is the cost of success you know yeah definitely and like i would also like to ask you um if you were to turn back in time and you know talk to your your 18 year old self what would you tell her like what advice what would be your best advice well i if i turn back and look at my 18 year old self i just feel uh such compassion and and also fear and sadness i think i the fact that i lived this long um is totally unpredicted you know and kind of inexplicable so what would i say she she first of all my 18 year old self was pretty unreachable so one of the things about me then was that i didn't need to learn anything you know i was completely closed i had all the answers and um no one was going to tell me anything so i don't think i would have listened to me if i said you know open open your eyes or open your mind or you know consider something else so i probably wouldn't say that um i guess to have faith in the process and the process is i guess what we've been talking about you guess like the um the putting one foot in front of the other you know turning off the phone for first an hour and then a day um making different hard choices going through pain I think that you know when I was later given the opportunity to do that I really didn't think it would work I didn't think it would help but as I look back I see that just these little steps of um living really opened uh you know a way for me and I think that is how life is and I think there is a a movement toward wholeness or to growth or whatever you want to call it that that happens kind of of its own accord or you know from life itself that we just have to show up for and say yes to now i got a dog here yeah and i definitely agree with it it relates to something like the comfort zone that i've learned about and you know just you know expanding your comfort zone instead of making it narrower like what you said before and like i definitely do relate 
or resonate with that in a way. And we should always, you know, avoid, we always tend to avoid situations that test us or are terrifying. And personally, even though they may be necessary or required, the situations we need in order to grow is actually, you know, facing failure. And these unpleasant tasks actually help us grow and develop as individuals. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned. And so I would like to ask you, on the other hand, on what's the most important thing you've ever learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it and after learning it? You know, I am a perpetual student. <laughs> and uh, as for as closed as I was at 18, I'm kind of wide open now. So I would say I know very little. I have learned um I am still learning. And so it's hard for me to, I don't feel like I have, uh, you know, a big sack of wisdom I can, I can pull out of. I think, um, I think much of what I've learned is what we've been talking about, kind of the hard, tedious work of making choices for, um, my highest good and others' highest good rather than taking the easy way out. Um, so, and I don't, you know, I think this is a result of age, but when I was, you know, I don't see it as before and after. And I, I see very few things as black and white. I see um, my life and my connection to life in general as a, kind of a continuum and a an expansion or a retraction, depending on the moment and the circumstances, but mostly my uh, what I choose to focus on. So, what would I say? You know, I've I've developed a really tough skin, and um, what I mean by that is that I I really admire my ability to put one foot in front of the other and just carry on. And I did not have that kind of fortitude as a kid. And, um, you know, so I was looking for the easier way. Now, as I say this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, am I inviting, you know, disaster? I have had a, a very um, fortunate life since getting clean, more or less. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's so many things. I guess I would say, again, that I've learned to say yes rather than no. And uh, the more that I say yes, the bigger my life becomes. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the biggest um, things that I, I, I've heard of that um, phrase multiple times, like saying no and saying yes. It's really difficult to actually say yes and accept things in life. And like one of my friends recently, this was very recent, and one of my best friends, um, she, uh, one of her friends um, actually passed away recently, and she, she was feeling very you know down and depressed about it, and it really um, kind of hit me and her um, in a sense that we, you know, again we have one life, and we actually should make the best of it, and it really does. Um, resonate with what you said before about you know um, looking at it looking at everything with a wider perspective instead of looking at it narrow and you know 
Another yeah. way I think we could say that is um, the perspective thing is that saying yes requires letting go. And saying no is all about control. That is tough. You know, it's like great in theory. But, um, you know, think about standing in an airplane considering, you know, parachuting out and saying yes. You know, that that's what it feels like, I think, to live from this place. And, uh, in fact, I heard a great story one time that might be good here, but... Um, so you're at the airplane and you're and you're thinking, you know, should I jump? And finally you say yes and you do. And then you realize you have no parachute. And then you realize there's no ground. So living from that place is very different than huddling in the back of the plane, you know, with your phone or something. Yeah, definitely. And um it's really interesting on how really relate with you on this and it does make a difference in a way and really going back on you know saying yes it's really difficult sometimes to actually accept things and um you know sometimes when when it's hard to let go we have those long de- depressive periods and it really just takes up a bunch of our time and yeah it's definitely like a big thing in life to learn well, so I support I would, you and, yeah. uh, and what you're doing, and, uh, which is I think about sharing the yes. And, uh, and I think, you know, we, we just uh, carry on. Yeah. And, um, well, I would like to thank you again for coming on this um, podcast. Like, it really, I really appreciate it because for me, it's really hard to get guests on, especially a new uh, podcast show. So I really thank you for that. And I'm really grateful for that. And in a way it also relates to what you said, you know, um, we got to just keep trying and, um, you know, accepting the fact like I've been um, getting a lot of no's for, uh, for guests getting on this show. And I just had to accept it and move on and find uh, new guests that I find inspiring. And I definitely find you as one of the most, you know, inspirational people in life. So I would like to thank you for that. Well, thank you too. It's been an honor and I'm, and I'm very happy about your, uh, your invitation, but also your work. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. 